Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. This week was a long one and a particularly heavy one for me on a personal level. On Friday, we buried my grandma and I officiated the funeral, which was an honor and a blessing, but trying to find the right words took a lot of time and emotional weight. And on a global level, watching what's been happening as Russia invades Ukraine is heartbreaking. No matter what your position may be on the hegemonic responsibilities of the United States in the middle of global crises, there's not a way to be anything other than profoundly moved and saddened as we watch young men sent by their leaders to kill and die. And we see innocent people having their homes and homeland destroyed, but not only that, being cut down by bullets and bombs. Soldiers are dying, civilians are dying, children are dying. And as I've watched all of that unfold over the last few days, my heart has been breaking, but it still felt a little bit distant from my daily life until I stopped and thought about it a little bit more deeply, about the human emotions and thoughts behind every single person involved in this on either side. People created to be a picture of their creator, watching creation destroyed all around them. And I realized on some level, they're probably all a lot like me. We have a shared humanity. And I asked the question in my heart, how does it get to this point? Because I wonder if the seeds of this whole conflict don't live inside of me too. And if it all doesn't start with fear. We live in a world that is full of uncertainty, and uncertainty breeds fear inside our hearts, and fear does something to you. We've seen it. We've lived it. You get scared because of the uncertainty, and then you turn inward, and as you're turned inward, you become more tender, and you get offended. Somebody hurts you or offends you, and because you've been offended, you decide not to forgive, and that unforgiveness becomes bitterness inside your soul. And the poison pill of bitterness festers and eats away at you until it becomes anger. And you want to hurt the person who hurt you and you hate them. And then your hatred turns into violence and you wish death for that person. And that violence becomes murder. And then murder turns into war and war becomes genocide. I think we only step back and call it the human problem when we see it expressed in genocide, when innocent people are being slaughtered, or when we see it in war or murder, because we feel cut off from that. There's kind of a distance between me and murder, right? And something inside all of us is actually compelled, whether we understand the reasons why, to separate that from who we are and where we're at, because the truth is, as it gets smaller and smaller, it gets closer and closer to home. As we peel back the layers of war and violence to hatred and bitterness and anger, it becomes us. It becomes me. Like every war that has ever been fought from the beginning of time began in the human heart. 
Our souls are at war because they cannot find the peace they were created for in the middle of this shattered, sin-stained reality. So what do we do with that? We're kicking off a brand new series this morning where I want to try to answer that question, and not just on a global, philosophical, ethereal level, but on a really pragmatic one that applies to our day-to-day lives. Because the uncertainty of our world that breeds fear in our hearts is real, and we're afraid about everyday common things in this world. Like, we, we worry if we'll ever be able to have kids, and then we have them, and we worry about how we're raising them, whether we're doing it right. We worry about whether our finances will stretch far enough to get a house or a car or afford our eventual retirement. We worry about what the people around us are thinking and saying behind our backs. We worry that our health might fail or our job status might change suddenly and leave us desperate. It's easy to find ourselves questioning what the future holds. And in the middle of that uncertainty, it's really hard to find the peace we desperately long for, the peace God actually says we're built So how cool would it be if there was something we knew we could trust no matter what? Or even better, someone we knew we could trust. We'll call this this series when picks fly. We're actually walking through the Apostle John's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And specifically, we're going to look at these fantastic, crazy, incredible miracles John writes about Jesus performing. And what we're going to discover is that they weren't just random acts of kindness or neat parlor tricks, they had a purpose. Jesus consistently did all kinds of things that everyone thought were impossible. And the things that we stop at say, well, that'll happen when pigs fly. But these when pigs fly moments in the life of Jesus were meant to prove to everyone around him, to prove to us still thousands of years later, that we can rest in the peace of knowing that God is working and he's in complete control and he's ready to do the impossible in our hearts and our lives as well. Which is powerful because it's an anchor for our souls. It means we can know that peace is possible despite everything that's going on around us because our lives are built on something more solid than just a a wing and a prayer. Our faith, our belief, they're built on evidence, not just hope. It's interesting, those words faith and belief can get a little bit twisted when we uproot them and drop them into the theological sphere. We kind of equate them with, with hope when it comes to belief in God, but out there in the world, in our jobs, in our schools, in all the places of culture where we live, work, and play, we believe and we have faith based on evidence. Because of what we've seen, because of what's been measured, because of what we've read, because of how much we trust the person who told us that information. Like everyone else in this room, at some point in elementary school, got told that 9 times 9 equals 81, right? But I'm willing to bet that no one here and no one watching online heard that and then went home and dumped a bunch of rice on their table and made nine rows of nine grains of rice and then counted them one by one to make sure that teacher wasn't lying. Like one, two, 46, I dropped one. Where was I? 40. Oh, I got it. I got approved though. Right? We just trusted it because our teacher told us it was true. And what John's doing in his gospel is saying, listen, as someone who is trustworthy, because I saw this stuff and I heard this stuff and I lived this stuff, as someone who has suffered for my entire life to tell the world about this, who's watched every single one of my friends willingly give up their lives to make sure the world knows this is true. I want you to know who Jesus is. 
I want you to be so confident in the evidence of his life that you build your life on it. Because he is exactly who he says he is. And the way John goes about doing this is that he constructs his narrative around seven stories of seven different miracles Jesus performed. Except John doesn't use the word miracles. There is a word for miracles in Greek. We find it in the New Testament in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, but not in John. John calls them signs because John wants us to understand that when Jesus does these supernatural things, it's not simply a display of his raw power. It is a display of raw power in order to point us toward something. It's a guidepost meant to aim us in the direction of the truth about who Jesus is and what he does in our lives and what that means for all of us going forward. And at the end of his gospel, John says, look, Jesus did even more signs than this. I didn't even write it all down. I saw them, other people saw them, but I picked these seven specifically because I think they are particularly helpful for us getting a bigger, better vision of Jesus. And I have a reason to do this. The very last verse of John says, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John could not be more clear. He's like, you cannot survive this messed up world. Full of hatred, full of violence, full of uncertainty without knowing who Jesus is. You need to know this, and that's why I wrote all this stuff down. These crazy wimpics fly moments are in my book. Not so that you would become enamored with the miraculous, but so that you would become enamored with the one the miraculous points to. The very first one that, that he writes about is found at the beginning of John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to John 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words up on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids need one, we have them in a bunch of different colors for a bunch of different ages back in the Next Steps table. They're free. We'd love for you to take one before you leave today. But John chapter 2 tells the story of a miracle that's, that's pretty famous. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard about it. We read this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother came to him and said, They have more wine. Well, why are you calling me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, completely ignoring what he had just said, right? Because that's what moms do. She said, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, first things first. This is kind of a weird miracle to have be your first miracle. It's not one that makes a lot of sense. And even Jesus in his discussion with his mom kind of hints at that. He's like, I don't know that this is my problem. Like you're kicking off this big grand earthly ministry the first time you publicly display 
your divinity the first time the world gets to see that you are in control of this world that you actually created. You do that by solving a catering disaster. Like, really? It's fascinating for a couple reasons. First, it's fascinating because this is not the kind of story you would make up. Right? If you're first century John and you're trying to invent some new religion and convince people that this guy named Jesus is actually God and you're pulling that out of thin air, you would not say the first incredible thing he did was he spared some nobody family from the middle of nowhere a little bit of social embarrassment. It's just, just not a thing that, that you would make up. And this is also fascinating because it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. Honestly, if you're opening a business, if you're publishing a book of any sort, and if you're launching a new endeavor, you kind of go all out for the grand opening, right? But Jesus held his grand opening in Cana, Galilee. Anybody know what that is? Anybody? I got that one. See, Galilee's at that pink part up there, or gray, because our projector's rocking this morning. But like, anybody see Cana, C A N A? No? You know why? No one even knows where it is. Like, you might find a map that has Cana on it. They don't know. They're just guessing. Like, it was probably kind of over there. Archaeologists have never even tried to discover it because it was that insignificant and that unimportant. And Jesus launches his earthly ministry in a nowhere place full of nobodies, turning a little bit of water into wine, and it kind of feels like a missed opportunity, doesn't it? A missed opportunity to like to to launch big and tell the world what you're all about and who you're going to be. Like unless, unless what he does here is a way of powerfully communicating the essence of who he is and what he's all about. There are a couple of things I want us to see in the story this morning. The first one is this: nobody is a nobody to Jesus. Jesus showed up and did something incredible that publicly revealed his divinity to people for the very first time, and he did it in the lives of ordinary, simple, insignificant people like us. I think if you're anything like me, it's easy sometimes to fall into the trap of believing that God saves his big, important work for big, important people in big, important places, and to wonder whether he really listens to me, because why in the world would he move or pay attention to a nobody like me? He's got bigger fish to fry than my life, right? There's a war in Ukraine. There are people that actually matter to the world who are probably praying for stuff that actually matters to the world. So why would I even bother? I I don't matter. Why would he listen to me? Because nobody is a nobody to Jesus. He spent an incredible percentage of his life hanging out with nobodies doing amazing things in the lives of people who, who the important people would look at and say, why in the world would you do that for them? And he did it because they matter to the heart of God, because you matter to the heart of God. He stepped out of eternity into the human story so that you could be redeemed. He came for us all because nobody is a nobody to Jesus. Second thing I want us to see in the story is that Jesus responds when we make requests. And John tells us he showed up at this wedding in the first place because he got invited to show up. 
And as we read the accounts of his life, we see him constantly going to parties that he got invited to, even when they were thrown by people who disagreed with him or disliked him or wanted to trap him. When Jesus got an invite to a party, Jesus went to a party. The guy liked parties. You cannot read about his life and come to any other conclusion. And even the miracle itself, it's pretty clear in the dialogue that he has with Mary that he wasn't planning to do anything about the situation of the wine being gone until she invited him into it. She came up to him and she's like, hey, they, they ran out of wine. And that'd be a bummer at, at any wedding, right? Even in today's day and age, it would be really embarrassing to run out of food or beverages or desserts at, at a wedding. But I don't think we can fully understand because of our cultural context how humiliating it would have been back then. Like this family would have worn shame for a really, really long time. And so Mary realized there was a problem that probably only Jesus could solve, and she went and requested that he would solve it. I think it's important for us to understand here, this was not because Mary wanted some more wine, she had a hankering to get her drank on, all right? I don't think this is a Jack Sparrow situation where Mary's like, why is the wine gone? It's not like me at a wedding looking for a corner piece of cake because I want to get as much frosting as I possibly can and just sitting there and then they're gone and like find all the stupid middle piece, I guess. Mary's not like, more wine. We don't know whether this is like her family or she volunteered to help with the catering or she just had a big heart, but she felt compelled to help and she went to Jesus and asked him to do something, which kind of makes me wonder what it was like growing up with Jesus in the house. Like how many times she'd had this experience before. No one else knew, but like she's baking. She's, I need a cup of sugar. I cannot go to the store again today. I don't have time for this. Jesus, I'm going to set this out. I'll look the other way. Let's get it full, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Like I don't know if that happened, but it feels like it probably did. And then like she comes to him and she asks, and he goes, woman, why do you involve me in this? Which is interesting. Because that's actually the same exact thing I say to Jenny whenever our kids are fighting or the house needs to be vacuumed. <laughs> like, just quoting the Lord, all right? <laughs> Not really. I don't recommend using that one. That quote and get behind me, Satan, are ones that I have found wives do not respond well to, even if Jesus said it first. So don't do it. But seriously, this feels like a really rude way to talk to your mom especially for Jesus. feels kind of out of character for him, right? And if it feels like that, it's because it is out of character, or it would be. We kind of lose a little something in the translation on this one. Woman was actually a really respectful way for him to address her in public in that culture. It was an easier way in the middle of a wedding to talk to her instead of saying, mom, right? And why do you involve me, literally in Greek, is what is this between me and you? Basically what Jesus is saying here is, mom, I don't think this is our problem. It's not really like kingdom directional to what I'm doing, and it's not our wedding that we're throwing, so my plan is just going to be to, to let it go. And he seems almost reluctant to do anything about it, but he's not. He's simply demonstrating the power of invitation. He waited to move until Mary requested that he do something. And let's be real about this. He knew the party was out of wine before she told him. He knew everything all the time, including what people were thinking, which I think would have made him really frustrating to hang out with occasionally. Also, he was at the party. He was probably thirsty. This wasn't news to him when Mary was like, they're out of wine. 
but he didn't do anything until she made the request. And I can't help but read that and realize like, when we pray, we're not doing that to inform God of stuff he didn't know. We're not doing it to tell him about stuff that, that is, is news to him. He already knows. We're doing it to invite him to move. Not because he needs our invitation in order to move. He certainly does not. But because we need to invite him so we know where our help came from. I think maybe we should stop being surprised when God shows up in the places where we invited him to show up. And also stop being surprised when he doesn't move as powerfully as we would have liked in the places where we haven't invited him to show up. It's interesting to me to think about this. Like Jesus brother James was probably at this wedding too. And he did not believe that Jesus was God for Jesus' whole life. He was, he was an unbeliever in all of that until he watched his brother crucified and saw him risen again. I actually have a lot of grace for James on that disbelief because what would your brother have to do to convince you he's God? take a lot. My brother's a lot closer than I am, and he'd still probably have to rise from the dead for me to believe it, right? But after the resurrection, James believed. He became one of the leaders in the church, and he wrote this letter that we have called James, and in chapter 4, verse 2, he said, you do not have because you do not ask God. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if as he was writing that, he was thinking back to this moment where a miracle took place only because his mom asked God for the miracle to take place. And it's so cool how Jesus actually did it. Mary doesn't have any clue how, she's, or how he's going to do it. She just knows he, he can, right? So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And what he does, how he pulls this off is incredibly significant. It's actually the big idea of the whole passage. It's the reason that out of all the incredible, miraculous, wind pigs fly things Jesus did, John chose this to be one of the seven he used to communicate clearly to us who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. We read that he looked over and he saw six of these like 30-ish gallon stone jars that would look something like this. They were used for ceremonial washing. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but we got to get it that this is more than just washing your hands real quick before you eat. The ceremonial washing of your hands all the way up to your elbows was an important part of Jewish religious practice. It was a way of obeying the law of God and participating in the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. So these jars, as, as soon as people saw them, they knew exactly what they were for. They were a symbol. They were an icon of this old covenant of cleanliness and uncleanliness, of being made clean before God by participating in a certain set of religious rituals and checking all the right boxes, which included sacrificing bulls and goats so that the life in their blood could cover over the death caused by your sin. And what's so brilliant about this miracle, the part that gives me goosebumps, is that Jesus decided to go public and perform his first sign by using something he actually came to earth to render irrelevant. 
He used something that was about to be replaced in order to point to the new thing that was about to be put into place. See, the old covenant was disappearing. It was no longer going to be the blood of bulls and goats to cover over sin for a little bit. It was now going to be the blood of God shed to cover all sin, to pay the full price forever, past, present, and future. We got to see this whole story is full of foreshadowing and it's full of symbolism. Like Jesus told the servants to go fill the jars with water. And then at some point it became wine. We don't even know. It wasn't like he said a magic word. John's like, and then Jesus said, abracadabra, and boom. Well, that might be sacrilegious. He said a Bible word like, behold. And like it just, he said, go fill them with water. They took it to the master of the banquet. That dude tasted it. He's like, wow, this is good wine. But here's the thing. Just like that water in those jars was about to be replaced with something better, the jars themselves we're about to be replaced with something better and significantly more beautiful. And we read that the master of the banquet, kind of the MC of the event, he, cha- he tasted the wine and he was shocked. And he called the family of the groom over and he's like, wow, I'm floored by this. Most people start with the expensive wine and then after a few days of drinking when everyone's taste buds are a little deadened and they can't tell the difference, then they bring out the cheap stuff. But this is the best stuff I've tasted yet. You saved the best for last. And again, this is a symbol that points us directly to Jesus because that's what God did too. The old covenant was just a little bit of a taste. It was just a small picture of the beauty and the fullness and the wholeness that was coming when Jesus ushered in the new covenant. God saved the best for last. But the only way to make that happen was by Jesus giving up his own life and I want to try this morning, at least as as best I can, to help us see this moment through Jesus' eyes. Because we need to feel the, the weight of it. As Jesus looked at those jars and realized what was happening, he knew exactly what it was going to cost him. And it's almost heartbreaking to go back and read the story again and realize what he really said to his mom. After he asked, why do you involve me? He said, my hour has not yet come. And here's why that matters. Every time Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, in John, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, every time he says my hour, he's talking about his death. And so what he really says when Mary says, hey, can you make some wine? Is, it's not time for me to die. It's not time for me to die yet. But then he turned the water into wine for your sake and for mine, for the sake of the world. He took a very direct, intentional step toward the cross. And why? Because as John makes clear, just a few paragraphs after he's finished telling the story, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why, because he loved you. And then Jesus sat in the middle of this wedding feast thinking about his own wedding with his bride, the church, knowing exactly what it was going to cost him. And I love the picture painted of Jesus at this wedding by the 20th century theologian Edmund Clowney. He wrote, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I could sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. See, Jesus 
provided the wine so we could recognize that he is the true master of the banquet. He's the one who creates space for us to find peace and hope and beauty and life, even in the middle of the brokenness that surrounds us. This is the last thing I want us to see in the passage this morning. Jesus brings the joy. Jesus turned water into wine to bring joy to the party, and in our lives, Jesus brings the joy. He sets the stage for us to live in a completely different way than the world around us. Yes, things are scary sometimes. Yes, things are broken. Yes, there's pain and sorrow everywhere we turn. Yes, we're surrounded by violence. Yes, the future is uncertain. But we are not without a real hope grounded in a real Savior who really did die to pay for our salvation and defeat death from the inside so we could live. A Savior who really is at work now, setting all things right and making all things new. Because joy is real because Jesus is alive. And Jesus brings the joy. And here's what I want you to know today. In the middle of all the uncertainty that surrounds us and robs us of peace, the middle of the brokenness that causes fear to well up inside us and plants the seeds of hatred and division and violence in all of our weary souls, I want you to know that Jesus is inviting you to find joy that brings peace to every moment. Not someday, far from now, in the next life, but right here and right now in this one. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what's been done to you or where you've been because nobody is a nobody to Jesus. He stepped into the human story for you. And all you have to do to receive the fullness of that peace is request it because Jesus responds when we make requests. You just have to invite him in. And if you never have this morning, you can. It's easy. You just got to come to him and say, Jesus, I believe. Would you forgive me and set me free? Would you take my life? And if you do, I promise you will find a joy that transcends the circumstances of this shattered space we share because Jesus brings the joy. And for all of us, no matter where you're at on your journey, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time or for a little while or for the last eight seconds, like wherever you're at on your journey, my prayer for us is that we would let this truth land deeply on our souls this morning because I think if we do, as we do, we'll be able to walk back out into a shattered world and shine some real light in the middle of all this darkness. I think the words of the great writer A.W. Tozer have maybe never been more relevant. A frightened world needs a fearless church. A frightened world needs a fearless church. And Jesus' first sign, water into wine, is a reminder to every single one of us that fearless and full of joy is exactly the way we were created to live. And we can because of who he is. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for creating space for us to live even in, in the middle of, of brokenness in a way that seeks beauty and points it out to the people around us. Thank you that hope is real and joy is real. Thank you that we can be forgiven and set free. Thank you for being a God who doesn't treat us like the nobodies we are, but instead steps into our story to offer us hope and meaning and joy and a future. And in the middle, Lord, of all this uncertainty that's out ahead of us, in the middle of the fears that well up inside of us and exhaust our souls, in the middle of the, the seeds of violence and hatred and, and bitterness that live in us, would we be a people of peace and a people of joy and a people who are able to walk out into a dark world and shine your light because of who you are and because of what you did for us, because of the new covenant and your blood, which redeems us 
forgives us and allows us to live forever with you. Fill us with joy today that overflows out of us all, o- all over our world that desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.